I actually called together his primary doctor, his psychiatrist, the nursing supervisor, the patient advocate, and I basically said, you have hundreds of patients, I have one, and I became his fierce advocate. Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant, a certified caregiving advocate, and a caregiver support group leader. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here we focus on the caregiver, we offer our practical insights and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, and we all know that laughter is in fact the best medicine. Don't forget the wine, Mike. Now you know I won't forget your wine. (laughs) You know, during the time that I was caring for your dad, I definitely relied on nurses, and one in particular, to help me manage all that was going on with him. I was fortunate in we were assigned a telehealth program, and with that was a nurse assigned to his case, a wonderful nurse by the name of Jason who uh, he and I formed uh, quite a coalition (laughs) to advocate for your dad. Um, I could call on him. He could call on me. Well, yeah. And while you were an advocate here at the house and, and doing that communication back and forth, he was there on site advocating for you and for dad. Well, there were, there were a number of times when I had a real concern and if it had just been me, the doctors may not have paid attention to it, but when I could call on Jason and he could go and address the issue, then I was more likely to get the results that I was hoping for. Not only that, but periodically um, he would see something from the the information that was sent back to the VA hospital, and he would call you something that you didn't have the opportunity to see. And he can provide you guidance that way. So he was a very, very important part of his care. Absolutely. Um, And it worked both ways. I could call him. He could call me. And I know that your dad did better because of that relationship. And that brings us to today's guest. She is a registered nurse spanning four decades and is also a board-certified Alzheimer's educator. For the last 20 years, she has focused on the care of people living with dementia and the education of their caregivers using her alter ego, the dementia nurse. Through her writing, speaking, and coaching, she lives to educate dementia caregivers one heart at a time. She is currently working on her next book, Disposable Lives, America's Betrayal of the Greatest Generation, due for release later this year. We are very pleased to welcome Gail Wetherill. Hi guys. Hi Gail. Well, I saw you. I saw you um, kind of nodding your head in approval uh, when I talked about the value of nurses. Absolutely, I'm so excited to hear that you had such a positive experience. Um, one of the reasons that I got have gotten so involved in dementia advocacy and helping caregivers is that. When I looked around at resources for caregivers and at the advocacy field, I was really struck by the absence of nurses. Um, Lots of social workers, lots of former family caregivers, but very few people with a medical background. So I said, okay, I'll I'll step in there. Well, we're certainly glad that you did. 
did you have a personal caregiving experience that, you know, is, has this touched you? Absolutely. Um, if you're alive in 2020, chances are you fall in that category. Um, several years ago, I had a beloved client of many years who had never married and had no family. And when she got to the point of not being able to be on her own, uh, she actually, I actually moved her in with my family and I, um, and she definitely, uh, she had vascular dementia and while hospice had given her about six weeks to live when we moved her in with us, uh, a year and a half later, uh, <laughs> she finally departed. And right now I'm dealing with my dad who has some mild vascular dementia at the tender age of 86. Hmm. I, I'm glad that you mentioned that someone was in hospice with a prediction that lived much longer than that. Mm -hmm. I think it helps people to understand that moving somebody into hospice care is not a death sentence. Many times they move out of it and move back in. Um, and it just depends. Um, I remember one of the nurses saying to, to Roger when he asked, am I going to die today? And she said, Mr. Carducci, I don't see an expiration date on your foot. And only God has the answer to that. Yes. Well, that's one of the drums I love to beat because hospice has changed so much, but um, a lot of people are not aware of that. Years ago, hospice was for deathbed care, and that is absolutely not what it's for now. Um, they are their goal is to improve quality of life for whatever life you have left, and then it thrills me to see people bringing them into the team earlier and earlier in a person's process. Uh, Gail, it's my understanding that you've also been an advocate for staffing ratios in hospitals. Is that true? In hospitals and in nursing homes, uh, that is true. I belong to a coalition called Nurses Take DC that has been working for several years now um, with some other organizations. We're working on national legislation, but also at the state level, because that's easier to manage and get things done, to uh, limit how many residents or how many patients are assigned to one individual. Um, that's one of the primary predictors of a patient or a resident's experience and their well-being, especially in long-term care. Um, when one CNA has 18 residents, to take care of how much attention is any one resident gonna get. So yes, that is another oh soapbox that I can hop up on pretty quickly. <laughs> well, you know, we saw we saw the effects of that in in the hospital when, you know, Mike's dad got excellent care at the VA hospital in Martinsburg uh, in West Virginia. However, um, because of staffing because they're busy, because they have hundreds of patients. It's not because people don't care or they want to neglect somebody. They're, they're too busy. They have too many patients to keep an eye on. And because of that, and he's had so many morbidities, so many different problems when he was on the psych ward, maybe they weren't paying attention to his 
his medical needs and vice versa. So um, I actually called together a, a, um, <laughs> his, his primary doctor, his psychiatrist, the nursing supervisor, the patient advocate. And, you know, we sat down, we had to come to Jesus. And I basically said the same thing. You have hundreds of patients. I have one. We need to get on the same page. And I became his fierce advocate. And basically, I said, when he was admitted to the hospital, so was I. And I would sit by his bedside and make sure that he didn't get foods that he wasn't able to swallow and, and things like that. But not everybody can do that. And that's, that's part of the problem with our health system now, that understaffing that you're addressing. And thank you so much for doing that. It's a huge issue. It also, you know, contributes so much to the rate of turnover that we see, especially in long-term care, because the folks that are there for the right reason and want to do a wonderful job and they know what a wonderful job looks like, but day after day, mm -hmm. they're prevented from being able to do that. They go home every night feeling terrible because they know what they wish they could do. And when they compare that with what they were able to do, it's a very demoralizing problem. You know, it's, it's interesting going back to what Bobby was talking about a minute ago, that my dad always felt that he wasn't sick. And he would say, you know, you go take care of the sick people. And he wasn't the squeaky wheel. And because they had so many squeaky wheels, right. his needs weren't addressed. And it wasn't because of their fault or their negligence. It was because I'm fine. Go take care of the sick people. And he was excellent at hiding symptoms. Yes. Yes, he was. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They are. Uh, those social graces persist, and especially with people with dementia. And sometimes that's part of a caregiver's frustration because uh, they see the real picture of how someone's able to function, but that individual can kind of pull it together for a doctor's visit or, you know, when other family members come in and they can, you know, carry on with those social graces for short periods of time. And then, you know, the doc and the family are going, what are you talking about? He's doing great. He was fine. And you just want to go. Oh. We certainly experienced that. Yeah. Now, since then, I, I advise people, you know, dealing with family members and even with doctors to use that wonderful uh, ability to take small videos on your smartphones and, and take that with you. And so people can see exactly what's going on. Right. And I recommend that to people all of the time because, um, you know, and especially with physicians and healthcare systems, uh, the visit is short. They've got 10 more people lined up behind you to get to. And listening to a uh, description of behaviors takes a lot more time than looking at a 15 second video to see someone, you know, throwing a chair against a wall. Um, and it has a much greater impact. So when, when you're working on the state level or the federal level, you know, to talk to people about these issues, what is the most important message that you feel they need to hear? The most important message is that there are two alternatives. And 
I go back to the whole, you can't serve two masters, you'll love one and hate the other. And in our system, we have to choose between people and profits. And unfortunately, our current system, profits come first. And all the rhetoric in the world will not change my mind because my mind is based on the things that I see and the experiences that people have, um, that we have to move into some sort of middle ground, um, at least. I understand that people aren't going to go into these businesses if there is no profit, but we have uh, cast aside in so many instances the needs and the well-being of the people that were supposedly there to serve. Um, so it's a shifting of priorities and a recognition that you can do both, but that's not going to happen by accident. It's a very mindful, deliberate process that we need to take as a society. So if, if I were to call my state representative or my House of Representatives representative uh, as kind of a call to action, what would you suggest? What I would first look at is um, there's a process of looking for advocates before you go there. Because if you're one person calling and saying, hey, over here, we have a little problem. Um, if it's you and the local Alzheimer's Association and the AARP and other groups that have similar concerns, building those, those coalitions first, and then finding a sympathetic legislator who is open to needs of families, needs of working women, people who've had a track record in those issues, um, approaching them about the issue, educating them first in sound bites, because uh, everybody's busy, um, and leading with stories rather than statistics. Um, so you are looking for what kind of legislation can we put together, what kind of proposal can we put together that will move us one step closer to where we want to be. And recognizing that you're not going to get the whole bunch of bananas the first swipe. Um, it's, it's a process, and people say, oh, this legislation doesn't really do that much. Well, no, it doesn't. But it it's the step that we're going to build right now because then we're going to stand on that and build a bigger step. You know, that reminds me, um, there was a little needlepoint in my mother-in-law's house mm -hmm. and it was on the wall as you came in uh, the door and it said, inch by inch, it's a cinch. Yard by yard, it's really hard. That is a fact. And you, you just reminded me, took me back to my mother-in-law's house. Um, and walking in and seeing that every time I walked in the door. Right. Well, several years ago, I had worked with a family after, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was doing case management, I had a ringside seat to an elderly person uh, suffering some incredible uh, financial abuse. And the laws in the state of Virginia, where I live, um, were pretty lenient at that time. It was almost sort of a slap on the wrist. And that was the process we had to go through. And it took us four years, 
each year we got a little bit closer to what we actually wanted going back to the legislature. But we finally, you know, put some teeth into the state laws so that these people uh, would be held accountable in a much more meaningful way than they were when we started. I know. I spent 31 years working for the federal government in DOD, and I certainly have realized that a lot of times government's movement is at half the speed of smell. That's a stone cold <laughs> fact there, brother. And, and you could probably track that and have the data to prove it. So, Gail, in all your years in, in, in working with, as a nurse and in working with uh, patients and your dementia experience, I imagine that you have a story or two uh, to share with our listeners. Maybe somebody that touched your heart in a special way or a unique way that you found to help somebody. Oh, my God. You're going to make me cry, but that's okay. I'll tell everybody I'm a crier. I cry at fabric softener commercials, so don't be alarmed. <laughs> um, a lot of times I, I go back to when I was in nursing school, and this was way back. Um, I had an experience that I always feel like was one of those sentinel events that I didn't know it at the time. I had no idea, but it really was a predictor and turned my feet in a direction that I'm still following 40 years later. And it brings me joy and meaning every single day. I was a nursing student at the University of Virginia. One day I had a clinical assignment in the hospital on a med surge ward. Well, Everybody's terrified when they have to go to clinical because, you know, you're going to look stupid. You got this goofy looking <laughs> uniform on for students, so which is like a flaming sign. <laughs> I know nothing. I know nothing. Um, so I go in and my patient is in the first bed. And of course, it's a double room. And there was a woman in the second bed and her name was Annie. And Annie lived at Western State, which was the state psychiatric asylum, because this was back in the 1970s. And back in those days, a lot of people with severe mental illness, that's where they lived, was in state asylum. Uh -huh. um, and Annie was this probably middle age, but a good bit of her hair was gray. Not that you could tell because it really didn't look like it had been touched in a very long time. Very tall and thin. And it wasn't just the fact that her hair was such a, a mess. She just looked lost when you looked at her. Well, in the middle of the shift, Something set Annie off, and she started screaming at the nurses and jumping back in the corner of the bed, swinging at them, trying to scratch them, don't come near me. Um, but she couldn't actually verbalize that. She had a really severe um, advanced disease in terms of her cognitive status. Well, it was a big hubbub. All the nurses come in and they're all, whoa, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And back in those days, what you did was you go get the doctor. So everybody, everybody runs out to go get the doctor. And I'm like, oh, okay. And 
it was a divine nudge after the room was quiet. And I looked at this woman and it was the sweet relief of silence after all the hubbub. And I walked closer to her bed and I just said, you don't know anybody here, do you, Annie? And with that single statement, she just cracked. And her face melted and she began to sob. No, I don't. And I was able to talk her down after that. And I bet you're really tired. There's a nice bed right here where you could sleep for a little while if you wanted to. And I pulled the covers back and got her tucked in and rubbed her back a little bit. And when the nurses came back, she was half asleep. And I didn't think much of it. Um, several weeks later, my nursing instructor said the nurses had gone to her and said, I don't know what that student did in there, but it was something miraculous. And it was something miraculous. And it's my message 40 years later. These are human beings. They have human needs. And instead of trying to figure out, you know, what medication do I need to slam this person with? What can we consider? This person was in a strange place. No one she knew, everyone coming at her, all of this noise. She just needed to be recognized as a human being and needed someone to say. Yes, when we validate their feelings. Absolutely. And speak to them calmly, um, look them in the eye. Yes, and treat them like human beings. And part of the problem that... Um, Caregivers who walk into this not understanding dementia right. don't get that. Right. And, you know, then they go to a health system that is focused on, you know, pharmacology. Mm -hmm. That's the right. answer to everything. And pharmacology doesn't work all that well. If uh, they had a medication that does half of what meaningful interaction does, they'd be flaunting it from every rooftop. Well, not only that, but what was created was a fight or flight situation for poor Annie. Exactly. And once, once that whole crowd of strangers that were coming at her mm -hmm. went away and there was a soft voice yeah. on her side, um, it, it makes a world of difference. People don't understand how much of a difference that makes way more than take a pill. Right. Absolutely. Um, and that's, you know, that's always my, my ticket for caregivers is uh, one of our best weapons is to be able in the hubbub to step back and do what is counterintuitive. Because what's intuitive when your loved one starts swinging from the chandelier is to jump up on the chandelier with them. And say, <laughs> you know, now what are we going to do? And, oh, my God, this must be my fault. I've done this wrong. And, you know, rather than, and it's just human to think of our own feelings and our own reaction. But if we can meaningfully and just practice setting that aside and thinking, what must the world look like 
to my loved one right now. I think one of the one of the biggest uh, aha moments I took away from a uh, caregiver conference was listening to a doctor who dealt with dementia patients and explaining that behavior is communication. They are speaking to us through their behavior. And if we address the message rather than the behavior, then we reach a point where we understand where they're coming from. Absolutely. And that's, you know, when I train uh, caregivers in facility settings, professional caregivers, my mantra, all behavior has meaning. You know, Pop is not swinging at them because he's, he wants to practice his right hook. There's something underlying. What is, what is he trying to communicate? And it's, I compare it in some ways to trying to understand an infant cry. Mm-hmm. Are they wet? Are they hungry? Are they, you know, and they can't put it into words. Our loved ones come to the place as language more and more evades them. Or, you know, language gets mixed up in their head and they think they're saying to us, That's, that hurts or I'm hot. And what comes out is there are men outside and I think they're going to get me um, mm-hmm. to look past the surface. Now, it, it, you're in, in addition to being an author and a nurse, you're also a support group facilitator, I believe, on Facebook. Hot diggity doggity do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there I was minding my own business. This was several years ago. Um, and by hurt or by crook, I went through a time period with health reasons and other things that I couldn't work. And I was like, oh my God, I'm a nurse. I've worked every day for the last, you know, zillion years. And um, so I went on Facebook and I was like, well, I can't go to work, but by Georgie, I can still be a nurse. Watch this. Who needs help? And God knows if anybody needs help, it's family dementia caregivers. So a couple of other gals and I, this was uh, six years ago, started a closed group on Facebook, which means that the only people who can see what you post there, excuse me, are other members of the group um, for dementia caregivers. Most of our members are are family caregivers. We have a few professionals, but we have to watch them because they have a tendency to think they know more. And I'm like, (laughs) you're not doing this 24-7, sister. When you are, come back and tell me what this one should be. Oh, Gail, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad because some of those professional caregivers ain't very impressed with me at all, but never mind. Um, and I remember six, this is only six years ago. I remember we were so excited when we had 200 members. We were like, baby, we're rolling now. Well, as of spring of 2020, we have over 50,000 members from over a hundred different countries in that group. And that just speaks to the enormous need people you know, they just need to know they're not alone. They need to share what worked for them and what didn't work for them. 
and Facebook was a perfect platform. I have a love-hate relationship with Facebook. Um, but for that group and that kind of support, it's a perfect platform because caregivers can access it 24 hours a day um, from a computer, from their phone, whatever, and they don't have to leave their house or their loved one or whatever to be able to do that. And they can do it when they need it, not next week is the monthly support group meeting. Not not next Thursday at 2 p.m. down at the senior center, and you're like, he's in the other room with the staff and you're like yeah i'm pretty sure that's him i hear screaming so it's <laughs> so, a it's a good alternative so how does one become a member of the support group there are several actually alzheimer's support groups that have sprung up on facebook since then which is fabulous the more the merrier the group that i work with it's called the alzheimer's and dementia caregivers support group and that exact wording uh, matters because uh, there are a lot of us. If you, if you type into the search window on Facebook, Alzheimer's and Dementia Caregivers Support Group, you'll find us and you'll know us by our um, profile pic is a bunch of big purple flowers. So I always tell people, look for the big purple flowers. That will be us. And that's we're, the only group, we're the only group with 51,000 members, so that'll clue you in, too. And that's where I, that's where I met you, and that, that brought us here. And, and like I said, I, I, I wish we were neighbors. I wish we could spend time together all the time. Well, that's my next project when the virus goes away. I'm getting in my car, and I'm doing a road trip to go meet as many members of that group as I possibly can. Well, that'll keep you busy for a while. Yeah, I need to be <laughs> kept busy. Bad things happen when I'm not busy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're very much on the same wavelength. You know, I, I do a presentation now called Find the Yes to Reduce the Stress, and it incorporates a lot of what, you know, we've talked on here today about meeting them where they are and, you know, looking at their behavior to see what they're trying to tell us. And I frequently... Um, compare it to a three-year-old throwing a tantrum and what they're trying to tell us. Um, uh, Yesterday, I saw someone on one of the Facebook groups. um, She was very frustrated because it seemed to her, her question was, can they forget really quickly? Because, you know, mom is calling me all kinds of names and she's being aggressive. And then Two seconds later, she says she didn't do it. How is that possible? You know, and, and my response to her was, think of it as a flickering light bulb. It only takes a second to change from light to dark. And this is, this is where her brain is right now. And yes, that is possible. And she's not faking and she's not doing this on purpose. Those words, she is not faking and she is not doing that on purpose. I Maybe I'll start making pillows with that (laughs) on it for caregivers. They're not faking and they're not doing it on purpose. And you know, that's something that uh, before we started doing what we're doing and educated ourselves, um, I know I really didn't understand that. And I used to get very frustrated with my dad 
And he would look at me and say, what am I supposed to do? And you would tell him. And five minutes later, the behavior went back and it was, right. what am I supposed to do? And I thought he's, he's doing this just to get me. Yeah. 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 But, you know, uh, education is a wonderful thing. That's one of the reasons why we do the podcast, to let caregivers know what we didn't know and we found out later so that we can help as many as we possibly can. And that's why we asked you on. And, my God, it's been a wonderful time and it's been a great education. Well, my motto always has been, and I used to tell the grannies in the nursing home, this don't worry honey i know everything and what i don't know i'm not afraid to make up so, <laughs> uh, we, we just roll with that and that's you know that's what my books are about it's like put all this stuff down in writing because i'm not going to remember when when uh whatever is going on plus that goes right along with my creative problem solving on the run mm-hmm <laughs> That's it. That's it. Give me five, man. That's all you got. And I'll tell you something. <laughs> Gail, it's been an absolute joy having you on the show. Um, I'm sure our listeners got a lot out of uh, uh, your stories and your advice. Call it what you will. It's just, <laughs> it's just my heart spilling over, to be honest. That oh, really I love is that. what my it is. My heart spilling over. Thank you, Gail. Gail, it's been wonderful. Thank you for having me. We certainly got a lot talking with Gail today. Hopefully our listeners learned a lot. Absolutely. Um, You know, the information that she shared on approaching our government officials and talking them um, and creating a coalition in order to approach them to have the best impact. And also the discussion on uh, people versus profits, which is very much in the forefront of what's happening now with our economy wanting to, people want our economy to open and some of us saying, no, 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 we're not ready and which is more important. And we all have our own opinions on that. Um, but it it's not just this huge impact. It also has impact personally on people's behavior and, and, and the resources that they can get. Yes. And uh, one of the other things was um, that she started up the uh, support group online when she wanted to work, but for some reason couldn't work. And and she started the Facebook page. And as a reminder, it's Alzheimer's and Dementia Caregivers Support Group. And it's the one with the big purple flowers. And it has 51,000 members in 100 countries. That's amazing. And there will be a link to that on our website. Yes, there will. And I'm actually looking forward to um, getting her book when it comes out. That sounds, just having talked to her, I just can't wait to read the book because she is such a delight. And I think one of the last, one of the other things was she reinforced something that you say a lot. And and I say not quite a lot, but you got to meet them where they are and their behavior is communication. They can't come to where we are. We have to go where they are. And uh, I, I think that was just something that keeps needing to be re- reinforced to our listeners and the caregivers out there in the world. Absolutely. 
You can find links to Gail's website in the Facebook support group page on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That, and I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes and post a review, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us or where Bobby will be speaking next, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America, a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.